Hello and welcome everyone to the Social Work Stories podcast. I'm Mim Fox and today I'm alone on the podcast because we have a really special episode coming your way now. My beautiful co-host Liz Murphy has written a story about um, a time in her career when she worked in the uh, public hospitals with alongside her colleagues who are working with antenatal deaths and um, sudden infant death syndrome. And she's written a story about the sort of loss and the really keen work that social workers need to do in the space uh, that is that very acute grief period. So she's paired today with a journalism intern of ours, Noni Reginato, and together they're going to read out this story that Liz has written and then they're actually going to do a debriefing discussion together. I really know you're going to love it. This is a gripping story and one that I know a lot of listeners have asked for more about how we actually work in this really difficult space. So I'll see you at the end of the episode. Enjoy. And welcome to the Social Work Stories podcast. My name is Liz Murphy, and I am being joined today by one of our journalist interns, who is Noni Reginato. Hello, this is so exciting. I know, isn't it? I haven't told Mim that we're doing this. I mean, I have told Mim that we're doing it, but I didn't think for a minute you and I would end up in another cupboard. No. I bet you they don't teach you this in journalism school. So, so everyone, today we're doing something different. So Noni and I have been working on a story about a social worker who uh, works with a, a family whose baby has died. And it's a little different in its shape. So I'm actually reading out a story to start us off with, a story that I wrote a couple of years ago. And then Noni and I are going to have a conversation about it when we come back. So have a listen to this story. And probably one of the things that I'd suggest you do is listen to the language that the social worker uses with this family and some of the different techniques and strategies that she uses to support this couple. Okay, so we will see you on the other side and oops, So I did mention that it is a story about a couple whose baby dies. So if this is something that you feel you're not up to listening to, totally understand. Come back around about the halfway mark and then you can listen to Noni and I talk about the background to the story and also some of the grief work that we talk about in it. Okay, enjoy. It's 4pm Thursday. One of the women's and children's team social worker, Deb, collapses in her chair. Christ, what a day. You okay? Her longtime friend and colleague, Morty, asks. Yeah, I'm just exhausted. That referral for the woman in 3 South ended up being full-on DV, so that took me most of the morning to sort out, and then the assumption of care went completely pear-shaped. The dad showed up and went batshit crazy and security had to be called to escort him out. It was horrible. I'm just going to finish my notes and try to get out of here by 4.30. Hey, is that your lunch on your desk? You must be starving. I am. 
No point in having it now. I have pizza and a big glass of wine in my sights. Deb's page goes off. Oh, come on. Let me get it, Morty offers. You finish your notes and get out of here. Oh, God, I love you, replies Deb and hands over her page. Morty listens to the midwife refer a woman who came into the delivery suite earlier in the afternoon. The woman, Violet, who was 38 weeks pregnant, came in to be monitored after noticing earlier in the day that her baby had stopped moving. Well, sadly, the baby's died and we're not quite sure why. Anyway, Morty, this is just a heads up as we've sent her home so she can organise to come back tomorrow for an induction. We wanted her to stay and see you, but she said she had to go back and pick up her kids from school. She had a mum with her, which made me feel a bit better, but understandably they were both in a state of shock. Her partner who works in a mine somewhere in Queensland is flying back tonight. She's coming back first thing tomorrow. We'll page you when she arrives. Thanks, Sue. This makes the third stillbirth we've had this month. Fingers crossed this is our last one for a while. Morty hangs up and realises that since working at the hospital, she's become superstitious around death happening in threes. Funnily, this is not unique to her. It's a belief shared by many health workers. The next day, Morty arrives at work with tension in her chest and belly. She's had a restless night. She knows it's related to her early morning meeting with Violet and her partner, Chris. Despite having worked with many parents whose babies have died in utero, Morty still feels stressed with the weight of what she needs to do to support this family through one of the greatest losses they will ever experience. She reminds herself that this work is important as it impacts on the family's grief and healing. Social work practice around neonatal death has certainly come a long way from the days where mothers were anaesthetised and their babies delivered and whisked away to be buried in unmarked graves under the well-meaning yet misguided belief of protecting the parents from the pain of having lost their baby. Morty greets Sue, the midwife, who made yesterday's referral. She's looking after Violet today. She recognises the look Sue gives her. She's seen it before. It's sadness tinged with relief that the social worker has arrived. Hey, Morty, how are you? I've settled Violet in her room. Her hubby and mum are with her. We're just waiting on Dr Val. She's been held up with an emergency Caesar and will be about half an hour. Why don't you go in and spend some time with them and I'll give you some space to have a chat. Morty approaches the birthing room. She notices that the purple butterfly symbol has been placed on the door. This is to signify to staff that a baby has died. She pauses before entering. Her heart is thumping. She takes a couple of deep breaths and clears her head. She steps into the room and instantly feels the heaviness of the three people's sorrow. Curled up on the bed is Violet and sitting opposite her is her partner Chris. Violet's mother Marta is standing by the window texting. The room is quiet apart from the whispers between Violet and Chris. Hello, I'm Maudie the social worker. I'm sorry to meet you in these circumstances. Sue, your midwife, has filled me in and asked me to come and offer you any support you might need. We can also talk about what will happen this morning after your baby is born. Violet turns her head. Her eyes are red-rimmed and she looks tired. 
She pushes herself up and sits and faces Morty. Chris gives half a smile and Marta approaches. Do you mind if I sit down? asks Morty. Chris offers her his seat and saddles up beside Violet on the bed. Did you manage to get any sleep, Violet? Not really. I had lots to do with the kids to get them organised and make arrangements for them for the next few days. Chris flew in late last night and we talked until after midnight just trying to make sense of this. Yeah, how do you make sense of this when there seems to be no reason for your baby's death? Which is not unusual, but very unfair. Here you are having to say goodbye to your baby when you haven't even had the chance to say hello. Chris nods in agreement and Violet weeps. Morty listens to Violet as she describes her trouble-free pregnancy and how she had noticed her baby had stopped moving yesterday afternoon. I was racing around madly yesterday morning and it was only when Mum and I sat down for lunch that I realised the baby had stopped moving. And I keep thinking, if I had got here earlier, would she be alive? Violet, it was nothing you did or didn't do that caused your baby's death. And it's important you remember this. Sometimes babies die without us ever knowing why. This is not your fault. Chris and Marta, it's important that you continue to remind Violet of this. Violet's mother approaches. Oh, my darling girl, you are one of the best mothers I know. You've been doing a wonderful job caring for the boys and our little Ivy. You've watched your diet, your cut out wine and coffee, your walk every day. All your antenatal appointments have gone well. There's been no indicator that the baby was struggling or that something was wrong. Your mum's right, Violet. You're an amazing mother. I only wish I could have been around more to help with the boys so you could have rested more. Morty sits quietly as Marta, Chris and Violet hold each other. Did I hear you named your baby Ivy? Yes. She's Ivy Kathleen, replies Chris. Lovely. I understand that Ivy is your third child. Yes, we have a five-year-old Patrick and eight-year-old Daniel, and they are with Chris's mum today. What have they been told? Chris responds. Well, we told them that Ivy was sick and mummy had to go to the hospital so the doctors could help her. And I don't know if it was right, but I just couldn't face telling them last night. Okay. We can talk about how to explain Ivy's death to Patrick and Daniel later, but I wanted to check a few things about Ivy's birth. For the next half an hour, Morty talks with Violet and Chris about what they would like to happen after Ivy is born. She offers the option of spending time with Ivy to bathe and dress her, have photos taken, and ways they can include Patrick and Daniel in the process. The obstetrician, Dr Val, walks in with her registrar. Morty leaves promising to check in throughout the day. As she walks over to the midwife station, she thinks about the conversation she has just had with Violet and Chris, one that incorporated the birth and death of their baby, and she wonders how the mind and heart of a parent makes sense of these two opposing milestones. After monitoring Violet's progress throughout the day, Morty returns at 3pm. Baby Ivy had been born an hour earlier. Violet and Chris are alone in the room holding Ivy. As she approaches, they both look up. Isn't she beautiful? states Violet. Morty looks down and wrapped in a blanket is the most perfect looking baby. Ivy is plump, 
her skin smooth without any markings. She has a crown of jet black hair. Her lips are crimson and heart-shaped. Violet lifts up Ivy's arm and on her chubby wrist is a bracelet with Ivy Kathleen engraved on it. She is most definitely a beautiful baby, Violet, says Morty. How are you going? Tired, but okay. The birth was pretty intense. I've never been induced before. I just focused on getting through the contractions one at a time. I couldn't think about the actual birth. Chris and Sue were great and they kept me focused. Without taking his eyes off his baby, Chris said, Violet was amazing. She was up pacing for most of the labour and only lay on the bed when she had to push Ivy out. It all felt very familiar except when they put Ivy on my belly. She just didn't move. She laid there so perfect. Violet sobbed and Morty sat down. After a few moments, Morty comments, Looks like you've bathed Ivy and dressed her in a lovely outfit, as we discussed this morning. And I've organised for a photographer from Hartfelt to come in. They should be here soon. Is there anything you need right at this moment that you think I can help you with? Mum has gone to get the boys and bring them in here. Can we talk about what to tell them about Ivy's death? Maudie, Chris and Violet discuss how they will explain Ivy's death to Patrick and Daniel. The parents are keen for their sons to hold their sister and talk to her. Morty provides them with information about how to talk about death with young children. Before Violet is discharged, she will provide her with some useful books on the topic. The boys arrive and run to their parents and Morty slips out of the room. Morty returns later with the photographer who takes photos of the family holding Ivy, as well as some beautiful portraits of her. Morty checks out the photos and marvels at the way the photographer has captured Violet and the family's images with such sensitivity and beauty. Over the years, parents have reported to Morty how treasured these photos are and their importance in memorialising their baby and the brief time they had with them. Before finishing up for the day, Morty ensures Violet is transferred to a single room in the gynaecology ward, set away from the postnatal ward and the sounds of crying babies and excited families. Over the next two days, Morty organises for baby Ivy to be brought up from the hospital morgue to spend time with the family. Morty sits and listens to Violet and provides grief support and counselling. She also helps the family plan Ivy's funeral. Violet and Chris decide to have Ivy's funeral at the local church and afterwards bury her in the children's section at the local cemetery. On the morning of Violet's last day of admission, Morty heads up to say goodbye and finds Violet very distressed. A friend came to visit me last night and she said the most horrible things. She said that I should be grateful that I had some time with Ivy and that now I need to focus on my two living children and get back on with life. I know it wasn't her intention, but she broke my heart with her insensitive words. Morty comforted Violet and talked with her how... The reactions of others and the difficulty people have in supporting grieving parents. Morty then told Violet about a support group for parents whose babies had died and gave her the local contact details. Before leaving, Violet shows Morty two gold necklaces which each have half a heart. Ivy will wear one and I will wear the other and that way we will always be connected. 
Well, that is such a beautiful gesture, Violet. You're an amazing woman and mother. Take care. I'll call you in a month, but if you think I can help you with anything before then, please call. Morty walks back to her office. She picks up a coffee on the way. She's looking forward to her supervision session with her team leader as she's keen to reflect on the work she has done with Violet and her family. Morty truly believes she is privileged to work with families at such a momentous time in their lives. She also feels proud of her profession and its contribution to helping families who have had a stillborn baby. Just as she sits down to enjoy her cuppa, her page goes off. It's the delivery suite. Thank you for that. That was beautiful, that story. Um, I guess what I'll ask first off, what was your main motivation for writing that story? So completely monetary. No, 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 <laughs> only joking. It was, a, it was a competition at the hospital that I worked at and it was called the Healing Narrative Competition. And it wanted health workers to write a story that, that said something about their work and so I decided that I was going to, I wanted to promote the work that is done by social work in the, in the, this, the area of neonatal death because I think I've mentioned on this podcast a number of times, often in health when a death occurs, it's like only a few of us hang around for the next stage and mostly it's social work and sometimes nurses and the occasional doctor and but in this case it is predominantly the midwife the family and the social worker that works with the with the with the couple or the family so i'm really keen as you know noni to help social workers especially student social workers to understand more about the language that can be used in social work. And so this is not a conversation that many people at all would ever bear witness to. And it's it's one of those conversations that, I mean, who has it? Who actually has a conversation with someone around birth and death in the same moment? Social workers do. So I wanted to capture that. Um, I didn't actually end up winning that competition. Uh, or the $1,000, which I was going to actually donate to buy a phone for the neonatal social workers at this particular hospital. But another social worker did, and her story was far better, I have to say. And I'm still hoping that she might let us read it one day on this podcast. But anyway, so yes, essentially it was for a competition just to shine the light on social work practice in this space. Liz, you mentioned there the conversations where you deal with birth and death in the one instance, how challenging is that scenario? It's quite a um, unique situation to have to deal with those two big milestones. So how difficult is it to do that as a social worker? So I want to preempt this by saying, this is really not my area of expertise. So I've only ever observed one. 
And so who helped me shape this story were colleagues and friends of mine who work in the neonatal area. And, uh, you know, like I'd write it and um, they'd give me some feedback and we would tweak it. But what I witnessed when I was, when I had the privilege was this delicate conversation that had to prepare the mother and father for the birth and talking about what was going to happen at the birth because for this particular woman that I saw was her first birth. And then interwoven in that was um, bits of the conversation about what was going to happen afterwards in relation to um, the body of this baby. So prior to me witnessing it, there had been another conversation by the social worker at the time in which the mother was told that the baby had died, so the previous day. So what tends to happen is this is a very staged conversation. It doesn't all happen at once. As you could imagine, Noni, you can't just be absorbing all of that in the one moment. Mm. So a good social worker in this area will stage it very delicately and read how much... Uh, the the couple or the or the mother have been able to take in, right? Hold space a lot, so I couldn't portray that in the story, obviously. But there can be a lot of just sitting and being in silence, um, a lot of nonverbal communication that's incredibly important, um, and there's a lot of I guess deep listening to the the story of the couple and the story of this baby's albeit brief life but there will be that woven into it as well and the dealing with the shock the dealing with the not being able to make sense of it dealing with the, the 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 blame that can go on certainly by the mother we heard that in the story that's quite common as well does that answer your question? It, yeah, absolutely it does. With what you were just speaking about there, could you talk a little bit about then how social work practice in this situation has evolved over the years? Yeah. In fact, I would love to because <laughs> this is one of these things I feel like so proud about. So I've been practicing as a social worker since the mid-80s and um, prior to that... Um, and in the mid-80s, I, I started practising in a hospital and it was just starting to happen where babies who had died remained with their parents for, albeit a very brief moment then. But prior to that, Noni, what used to happen was that babies were removed. Sometimes the mother was anaesthetised so that there was very little recollection of the birth process and that the baby was whisked away um, and often buried in unmarked graves and parents would essentially be like never see their baby and uh, so they would not have ever had that sense of this really has happened and never told where that, you know, that grave site was never had part of the played a part in planning the funeral so never had any of the rites of passages that 
are, we know or the rituals we know are really important around death. Um, so it was a it was a shocking, complicated loss that never really properly got grieved because how could it felt like it never happened. So social work now has very much brought it into focus um, and you heard that in the story. So the baby was was front and centre of the of the, that process of the birth and also the post-birth time. Um, names were being used. Um, the, the, the family got to hold and to, to have photos taken with the baby. So all, although that was a very brief moment in time that they had with that baby, apart from that pregnancy that mm. um, they'd had, there are, there, it was honoured through talking about it and, and also um, making those memories which we know as social workers is very important in the grief process. Liz, you mentioned there about taking photos with the baby and you do touch on it a little bit in the story. Can you talk a bit more about the organisation that is heartfelt and how the work they do supports families that are going through this? Sure. So Heartfelt is a is an organisation run, it's completely voluntary, and the photographers are all professional photographers who offer their time to take photos of babies who have died in birth. Um, and they will um, develop these photos and put them together in, you know, in a very professional way. Um, and they, they are a darn sight better than certainly any photo that I could take. And that's even with the latest iPhone. Um, <laughs> But I, I certainly know of some social workers who are brilliant. And if people can remember episode three, and I want to promote that one again. So episode three was called Memory Making and the War Correspondent. And that's with Deb DeWild, who's like the one of the greatest masters in this area of social work practice. But her photography, I think I raved about it in that episode, but it is of a... To, like it goes up a notch because it's not just the the stage portraiture that say heartfelt will do she'll get in there in the in whilst the woman's laboring uh, and she captures the emotion of the family of the even some of the staff um at the time and afterwards of the of the baby's um birth so, but social workers in this area have become very good at the memory making and photography, but Heartfelt's just an additional, um, I guess, service that we can provide for our parents and families. Can you talk a little bit more about the different methods of memory making that other social workers use? Yeah, so um, the the social workers that I worked with were brilliant in making these beautiful memory books with the family. So that's, I mean, one of the things I wanted to say, Nones, is that it's one thing to make these beautiful products, but the social work goes on in the process. Mm. So it's the conversations that take place in the making of the memory making. So let's say, for instance, the social worker with the family makes this beautiful photo album it's the conversations around the outfit that they chose or the 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 reason for the name of the child the um the the dreams that they'd had for that that child or the 
the the story of the loss of that child is woven into the making of these say the photo book mm. there were so these beautiful outfits that you know people make and give to the our delivery suite that are made from old their wedding gowns like the most beautiful they look like christening gowns mm. um and sometimes you know that people will choose those um they'll want to put a favorite toy in with the with the baby um there'll be letters that maybe siblings have written um in the story there's that that, that violet talks about a piece of jewelry that she had she was going to have one and and um the baby was going to have another mm. and so that's something too that um we're we're seeing more artwork um certainly on coffins now you can paint and and draw and so sometimes family members might get involved in that and yeah so there's i think it's the the scope is as creative as what the social worker and the family are um but the real skill is listening to what the family um are saying that they want for for themselves and for the baby Mm, i imagine it's a plays a massive role in the family's grieving process and, and healing process as well. You also talk in the story about the friend who comes to visit Violet and she makes some insensitive remarks. How common is that even from people that are well-meaning but they just come across in the wrong way and they hit a nerve with these families? How commonly does that happen? If I had a dollar... For every time one of my clients has told me about a heartbreaking story of how someone responded insensitively or not at all or avoided contact with them, I would have retired about, I don't know, maybe five years ago. (laughs) Uh, It is really common and I think that's because it's a reflection of our community in relation to we, we avoid death and therefore we often lack the language around how to have these conversations. Mm. We avoid causing pain um, to another uh, through our words and yet um, I, from, from you know talking to people, sometimes an attempt at something is better than nothing. Like people have told me how you know they can see friends crossing a road to avoid contact. Um, so, I mean, I think I use the example of that friend because I think there are some horrible cliches that people pull out at a time like that. And it's more for their own comfort than if they really thought about it. Um, you know, let's just park the cliches aside, like you can have another I don't know, there are some crazy ones about, you know, God and the plans and, you know... Everything happens for a reason. Everything happens for a common one. I I would say that, you know, probably the best thing you can do is just listen and hear what that person is saying that they need from them Um, and, you know, just be, I guess, checking in Mm. with them. Give them their space, but also don't forget about them. And if you do stuff up with a comment, apologize. Um, but don't don't leave them alone. Don't leave them in their isolation unless they're specifically asking for a bit of space. But yeah, look, um, it can be tricky. But listening is probably the best thing that you can offer. And my last question for you, Liz, is. Who do you hope to reach with this story? 
oh, so I'm hoping for social work students. Or, or in saying that, it's a very specific form of social work. So maybe there are some people who have been curious about what that conversation can sound like. Um, and because, you know, often people say, I, you know, I can't ever work with in that, that area, but I'm curious about it. On-call social workers, so this is our, you know, for on-call social workers, they're very rare that this happens, but when they do, you just kind of think, oh, I rarely do this kind of thing. I would love to know, have a bit of a sense of what the shape of that conversation Mm. could be like, and that also was a motivation for me writing it. But, you know, maybe if you're on call and you think or someone's giving you the heads up, you might be called in tonight because this mum, you know, just stopped, the baby stopped moving. She's gone home, but she might come in tonight. Maybe this is the episode that you might want to listen to in relation to how Morty just kind of stages her conversations with the, with the family. Well... I mean, Liz, I'm not a social worker, nor am I studying social work, but this story definitely resonated with me. I think it's important, even especially with just that bit about the friend, I think it's so important for everybody just to understand the importance of being sensitive and being aware and just being there in these kind of instances. I know they're not awfully common, but I think it's something important for all humans really to be aware of. But, um, Thank you for sharing this beautiful story with us today and and for letting me interview you. I've had a ball. Ah, thanks, Noni. And, um, yeah, like, welcome to the podcast crew and and sitting here with with you. Um, Speaking to a non-social worker is really good too because some of those questions, I can just take it for granted sometimes. So um, if you feel like you want to write a review about this particular episode you can and you know you could rate it just you know four four and a half five stars perhaps because it's just Noni's beginning of Noni's journalism career and let's not forget that you know there might be future employers out there one day too but but we hope that you've learned something from this podcast today and um we will see you very soon thanks guys Hi everyone, it's Mim again. I want to say a huge thank you to Noni Reginato, our journalism intern, for working with Liz on that story and on a debriefing discussion afterwards. We're really enjoying having journalism interns on our team here at the podcast. Noni, along with Hamish Cole, our other journalism intern who's behind all the social media that we do, um, are such a massive asset to us. And we we don't always think about the pairing of journalism and social work, but wow, it is such a wonderful, fruitful partnership. So I'm really appreciating having them on board in our team. And thanks to Liz for sharing that story with everyone as well. We're going to be doing a little bit more of this in coming in the coming months where we do a bit of a different sort of uh, social work story every now and then. So we'd really appreciate hearing your thoughts on that and um, get in touch with us either on the website, email us through socialworkstories.com or 
uh, jump onto Instagram or Twitter and get in touch with us there. It's been great that we've had lots of stories coming coming our way from all around the world. So no matter where you are listening, we would really love to hear what your practice is that you're working in, what you're experiencing. At the moment with COVID, we're all going through so many changes in our practice. This is how we can all document it and start talking with each other about how we keep growing as a profession and keep responding to the vulnerable peoples around us. So send hit us up, send us your messages and we'll be back soon with a more uh, what you're used to from us with social work stories. Take care everyone. Bye. Bye.